You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to spend the majority of our time in 1 Samuel 20 today, Uh, but we'll we'll begin in 1 Samuel 18 in a moment. Again, just thank you all for coming. This is a wonderful time where we get to break open the scripture. If you're visiting for the first time, we're in a series on King David, and so we've been walking through 1 Samuel, kind of tracing the path uh, or the rise of David into kingship. And so we've been on that track, and a few weeks ago, we did the famous story of David and Goliath, and, and then last week, we did David versus Saul, as Saul was trying to hunt down and kill David. And uh, we actually looked at some of this passage in 1 Samuel last week a little bit, and then chapter 20, it takes a very different turn. Not a different turn, I guess, is it just follows along that David's still being hunted, but we get this extensive passage. Uh, extensive meaning, uh, I don't have time to cover it all today in some ways, but there's almost 40, what is it, 42, 43 verses in 1 Samuel 20 regarding and really carrying over quite detailed account of Jonathan and David's friendship. And so today's message is really David and Jonathan's friendship. We're going to be talking about friendship. We're going to be talking about uh, what that looks like. And, and, I, and it's been something that I've been thinking about, and, and in eight, chapter 18, it talks about it as well in a moment, um, but what, what friendship is. And it's been something I've been thinking about, talking about um, this week with different people, and reading different articles, listening to a podcast on friendship as it relates to today's modern world, but also friendship in the Bible, biblical friendship. What, what is true friendship? So today, I just kind of want to explore that with you guys today. We're going to use this scripture, we're going to look at John, uh, Jonathan and David's friendship, and we're going to explore friendship at the level that I think will be very helpful for us as, as we try to figure out, what does friendship look like for me? What does it mean to be a good friend? In, in many ways, we're going to be looking at that exact, those exact points of what is a good friend. But what does friendship even look like today? What is the state of friendship in today's world? And as we often relate to, I know not everybody uh, this is a big deal for, but as we live in a technologically driven world, we're becoming and increasing in technology more and more in every day, you know? And the, the generation that's growing up is growing up in an environment where they're surrounded by technology. And it's been a wonderful thing. In fact, many times when, when you're traveling or you're away, you can constantly stay in contact with friends or family, right? You can be in touch with people. You can FaceTime or Zoom and connect with people who are very far away. And, and it's fascinating. I was reading an article by uh, The Atlantic entitled, You Are Here, and uh, they were quoting this psychologist, Robin Dunbar, and she says that our human capacity for relationship not particularly just friendship, but our human capacity for relationship does have certain limits. 
in the sense they were saying that having a meaningful relationship uh, depends on really in the sense that you, you in your life, you can have at one time anywhere from 100 to 200 people, depending on how social you are, to have a certain level of a relationship with. Now, all of those people you certainly can't have a deep friendship with. And sometimes our deep friendships, we have maybe, we can count them on one hand, maybe that is. But, but as social media grows and our ability to connect, or as if you have a 1,000 or 2,000 followers or 10,000 followers on whatever social media you have, you have a way to connect with so many people. And in many ways, psychologists are studying the modern world today, and we have an ability now to travel and communicate online, and we have a, an ability to follow and stay in touch with so many people. What they're sensing is that what's happening, especially in the younger generations, is we're having this kind of dilution of friendship. I don't even know if that's a real word. Uh, friendship is being diluted. Is that what, that makes more sense? Uh, th- this, this aspect that friendship, the depth of friendship is, is not going as deep as it maybe once was. And so what we're having is in our, in our network of relationships, they are, as many would say, a mile wide and, and an inch deep, maybe, right? And, and sometimes that can be the case. And I'm not sure, maybe those of you who are older and have seen kind of a, the, the changing culture over the last years and even over the last 20, 30 years, as culture has shifted a lot in this direction as technology has increased really rapidly. It's something that a lot of anthropologists are studying today, trying to figure out the human psyche in the modern world, as especially as it relates to friendship. And there was an interesting thing they gave. They said there are three types of friends that you're going to experience in life. Really, three types of relationships. One is active friendships. Many of you have them right now, or maybe you're sitting right next to a friend of yours, and uh, you've come to church maybe today with a friend. Uh, This person could be considered maybe an active friend, where you are regularly in touch with this person. You know what's going on in their lives. No, not every detail, but you're very much aware of what's happening in them, and you, in some loose way, stay in touch with them. All right? They are currently in your life an active friend. Uh, there are many things in life too, though, that that active friendship over time may change depending on where you live and how you stay in contact. And that friend can go into another category, uh, the dormant friend list. They are uh, a dormant friend, meaning someone you have history with, uh, but you maybe haven't spoken in a while. Maybe they moved away and you are always good friends. Nothing broke that relationship except for contact maybe. And if you happen to be in the same town that they lived in now, you showed up into town and you would text them and call them and say, hey, I'm in town. And you guys would get together uh, for lunch or for coffee and it would be like normal, right? It wouldn't be strange. It'd be like, wow, you just pick up where you left off, right? They're a dormant friend. And many of us have those two categories and you know of people maybe you're thinking of right now. And then there's the third category they said that will often drop, drop into a commemorative friend. Maybe there was someone um, that you were close to at one point in your life, but many years have gone by, and they're not exactly close in a sense. Uh, You knew of them in the past, but you virtually have no idea where they are now or what's going on in their lives, and picking up with them now if they were in town would be somewhat awkward because it it wasn't something that, you know, was normal. And uh, so now they're, yeah, in social media and today's world, we often are somewhat thrusting those kinds of relationships into the forefront of our minds all the time. And it can often take place or push aside the depth of friendship. 
And I want you to think with me, just even in regards to friendship, like what it's been like for you growing up. Again, some of you know it's like when you were young or your kids, or sometimes I think of back in my times when I was on a sports team and you had a friend who had your back physically in a game. Some of you I've talked with have spent time in the military and you know what that friendship was like. In a sense, it was a brotherhood. You were literally protecting each other out on the field, out in the zone, the war zone, and that you guys were, were protecting each other. You were a brotherhood. It's a tight-knit fellowship of friendship, you could say. And yet when you come back into civilian life, it can be a little strange. That, that's gone all of a sudden. You don't have that person who's got your back anymore. And I want you to think, do you, do you have a best friend? You know, Maybe you're like, I, I used to have a best friend. Or, or sometimes we'll even say, okay, and my wife's looking at me right now. She's like, I'm your best friend. Well, yeah. well we do. We have to think about our, our marriage relationships. Those of you who are married, uh, we often think of that friendship that between a husband and wife as, as a best friend. And yes, that's what we're, that is in a sense that way. But what we're speaking of today is, is platonic relationships with men and men and women and women. These relationships that are different than the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship, you could say, is the, the, pre, the ultimate relationship that we have uh, on earth here that describes this kindred bond, this love that you give to one another. But here we're speaking about friendship as it regards uh, two men and two women. How is it that that friendship is expressed today? And I think sometimes, especially in today's world, uh, this platonic relationship, this relationship between two people that support one another, that care for each other, that are dedicated to each other, and I dare say, as we'll see here in a moment, that love each other. These ways, I think, are something that you could say, is, is that a dying art maybe today? I don't know. And, and it's one of these things that I told somebody before I was preaching on this, I was like, man, I wish I had more time to talk about this. I don't, I don't actually speak about friendship very often. It doesn't come up. And so as I started getting into it, I was like, there's a lot more here. And that's why today I feel like we're just exploring it a little bit. I don't feel like I'm fully grasping what biblical friendship looks like. And so I'm presenting to you some things that I've found and looked at that are interesting that I find. And we're going to read here in 1 Samuel 18 a little bit here in a minute about what that looks like. The data shows, though, that today, as we said with technology, that uh, many people are, would describe themselves as lonely. We have connections we have ways to interact, we have text messaging, we have ways to contact people all over the world at any moment at the drop of a hat, and yet people are seemingly becoming more and more lonely. And in fact, all the data that I read and the statistics that I was looking into, it said that men are often more lonely than women. And that is not always the case, but it was often at least 10 percentage points more. And often they say men are less likely to admit that they're lonely. And it's funny because right now, that's funny, not funny, I don't know if that's funny, uh, it, it's striking that right now there's a men's retreat going on uh, where men are gathering together and forging friendships and, and finding ways that outside of the daily busyness of life that they can find someone in which they can confide in, someone that will support them, someone that will love them as a friend. And I wonder if that's something, like I said, that is a dying art because we have so many ways to connect on a surface level and we have so many ways to project who we are as an image on the outside and yet it be can become difficult to get to know us underneath that facade, to get to know who I am in my good times and in my bad times and someone who I know will be committed to me not just someone who will be committed to me because they can get something from me, but someone who is actually committed to me in a sense of loyal love, that I love you as a friend and I'm always there for you no matter what. 
And some of you have that in sibling relationships, that friendship between a sibling, that might be something that, in which describes, that is described here. Um, but, but it is a fascinating topic as we think this through. And yet, it is something that has also been described as I was reading a lot about Jonathan and David. It has to be said that what we're going to be reading here seems very foreign to us. Foreign for some of the statements that I'm going to read here in a minute in 1 Samuel 18 and 20 seems strange to us because of the culture in which we live in. Men, especially, do not always find themselves expressing themselves in these ways. Or the physical touch that we'll see between two men here, Jonathan and David, at the end of 1 Samuel 20, where they embrace. And we find that in these cultures, uh, giving a kiss to another man was not something sexual in any way, but it was something that expressed dear kinship. In fact, in the New Testament, I think it was Mike Donahue who made a joke about this the other night. He was speaking about platonic relationships and how even in the New Testament, it says, hey, everybody, the church, greet each other with a holy kiss, right? So we're going to do that today. No, I'm joking. We're not going to do that. So turn to your neighbor and, uh, no, okay, how to make church awkward really quick, right? But why is that awkward? Why is that strange for us? Well, in our culture, men especially often don't have any physical touch. We, we stay apart. And there is this sense in our, what you would say, hyper-sexualized culture in which homosexuality and some of these areas of expressing one's sexuality has become to such a forefront that men, in many ways, are, have an aversion to anything that would con- be considered in that like manner. And so I think it's important to consider that Jonathan and David are not in a homosexual relationship. And in no way could we find that here in the scriptures. And what's been do- what people are doing is, is, is they're reading modern culture into an ancient text. And they're ripping uh, in poor exegesis and ice. They're, they're ripping passages and just applying it to their modern context. And they have no understanding of what's going on in the culture. And so we know that. that that's not how you read the Old Testament especially. But in, it, that's, I think, important to men- mention today. And I wonder, not speaking for men, but also for women, I wonder if those relationships if sometimes that's the way we can look at it. And so with all that, I know some of you are like, Jordan, would you just get to the passage? Okay, we're gonna get there. Uh, first, first Samuel chapter 18. It says this, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is directly after David and Goliath. Okay, so this is a good turn. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse two Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his outer robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And then it goes on and says David was successful. And these are the passages we looked at last week. But you see and notice in this first part is so key that what we're going to be looking at today is really these five aspects of friendship. A few of them we're going to blaze through really quickly. We'll spend more time probably on the first or the last one here. But uh, number one is a, a friend is there in the good times and the bad. A friend listens to you. A friend takes action. A friend talks you off the ledge. And a friend keeps their promises. Okay, so some of those, again, those notes are online in the sermon notes. Uh, We'll be walking through them. They're also in those uh, printouts as well. But a friend is there in the good times and the bad. Maybe you know of friends like that in your life, right? Uh, Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. And some of you are like, yeah, my brother's born for adversity. I'll tell you that, right? Uh, uh, A friend loves at all times, right? It's a close-knit friendship. 
Proverbs 18, 14, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Many companions, many connections can sometimes stretch us too thin, but rather a friend, one, is one who sticks closer than a brother. And so Jonathan, we see right at the bat here, verse uh, 1, 2, and 3, we see Jonathan uh, befriending uh, David in a, in a time of good, a time of uh, success, a time where maybe you could even say uh, it would be important for him to show deference to David because he just took out Goliath. But what Jonathan does is, we talked about this last week, he takes off his armor, he gives it to David. In a physical and outward act, he is removing himself as the prince of the nation, and he is showing respect and honor to David, who would eventually take his throne. Jonathan's the next in line. He's the one who should be king. He should be against David as Saul was. He should be aligning with Saul for his best interest is to be on Saul's side and against David, but he does the exact opposite, the exact opposite. And it says that his soul was knit. He, he gives of himself. He outwardly shows respect. But inwardly, you, you could say as a table, they were soulmates, okay? That's uh, maybe not the greatest way of putting it. They, were, they had their soul knit. Now, the, the word knit, it really just means knit, okay? I, you know, sometimes I, I, I go in deep. It, it's what it means. It's knitting. Literally, weaved, bonded together as one. There's two people, they're kindred spirits. I don't know, we have so many other ways in our culture today to describe this. And maybe there's somebody that you know of, you're thinking of in your head, uh, and you're like, yeah, they get me, okay? And some of you are real weird, and you know that, you're weird, and yet you have another weird friend. They just get you, right? You guys are like buddies, right? You get each other. You're, you find that your soul's knit with this person. And it, it's fascinating when you consider that this person is close and connected, and again, maybe we think of our, our, our friends or our family. I think of my wife or people we love uh, who understand us at this level. But the soul knit is someone who is going to be connected to us and it is difficult to break that bond. It is not something that comes and goes. It is not something that is a, a casual convenience, but it is something that is connected in such a way, like a threefold cord that is often used to describe marriage that is not quickly broken, something that is weaved and knitted together. And so we describe this way that I think it's so important for us to consider today in our world, do we have that kind of a friend? Is there someone that we are knit together with? And then in like manner, are we that kind of a friend for someone else? I think that's going to be kind of a theme we're looking at today. Do you have that kind of a friend? And you say, well, I, I don't. Well, well, do you, are you being that kind of a friend for someone else? Are you committed and are you sticking up for someone, defending them, protecting them in the good right after David and Goliath and in the bad? Notice chapter 20, chapter 20, if you can turn there with me, chapter 20, verse 1. This is Jonathan being a friend of David in the bad times. Literally, do you remember last week we talked a lot about murder? Maybe some of you are like, yep, remember that a lot, right? There is attempted homicide, uh, attempted murder. Saul is trying to kill David over and over and over. He's unsuccessful. And Saul is rendered helpless at the end. In fact, he's, in a sense, blaspheming God and David, and then he comes to kill David, and Samuel renders him helpless as the Spirit of God uh, fills Saul's ha hatred or his words or his anger and malice, and it turns it to praise for God. It's an extraordinary passage. That's in 1 Samuel 19. But 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan. So David is on the run. Running for his life, 
God has just worked a great miracle, yes, but David has been hunted. Men and assassins have come to his house. They have, laid, they have uh, staked out his house waiting to kill him. He's fled from there. Saul's thrown spears at him. There's been conspiracy against him. He's, he is, in a sense, coming to the end of himself. He's run to Samuel. Samuel's and the Lord has protected him, but now he runs to Jonathan. It's fascinating. So he runs and he comes before Jonathan. And even in the bad times, Jonathan, you're going to see in this whole chapter 20, Jonathan sticks up for David. He is there in a time when it is, Jonathan himself is risking his very life being connected to David. Every time he has a conversation with David, he's risking his very life. And so David doesn't abandon him. I mean, Jonathan doesn't abandon David, but he's a friend who's there in the good times and the bad. When David killed Goliath, Jonathan is there. And when Saul, Jonathan's own father, is hunting to kill David, and anybody who is in conspiracy with David is also likely to be murdered, it is that person that sticks up for him. So he's a friend that is there in the good times and the bad times. He's a friend who listens to him. Look at this in in verse 1 and 2. They have a a lengthy conversation. And again, we're not going to have time to go through it all, but in verse 1 it says, uh, and uh, came and said before Jonathan, this is David speaking, what have I done? What is my guilt? Can you hear his exasperation? He's like, uh, what, what is going on? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life or that he wants to kill me and take my life? What's the deal, man? Verse two, and he said to him, far from it, Jonathan, you shall not die, right? Jonathan says, behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. Like, I know what's going on and why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. And then David my, uh, vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes and things. Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's a step between me and death. And they go on and talk and converse as they walk through this. David's in a hard place. He's in a difficult place. He just literally said, there is one step between me and the end of my life. He is as stressed as stress can be, okay? And what do you do when you're stressed? I know what my wife and some of you ladies do when you stress. You talk, you go talk, call somebody, right? And you talk it out, right? I think some of us men could do well to do that a little bit more, but we, we go and talk it out with somebody, someone who will, will listen to us, not judge us for every thought that we might have and correct us at every point, but to listen to what we're feeling and where we're at. And here they're in deep conversation. And yet I wonder if in relationships, do we know how to be in conversation with somebody and, and talk with them and help them. I was reading again about these ideas of relationships and friendships, and it said in, in many conversations that we have today, conversation can tend to be a dying art, uh, where we don't know how to handle the seven to eight minutes of awkward surface-level conversation in order to get down deep. That's what psychologists would say. It takes about seven to eight minutes to get past the Hey, how are you? Uh, what's the weather? Uh, what's going on? And you know, you then struggle to try to find something to keep that conversation going. Maybe is that just me? Okay, so you're like, no, I have no problem with that. I share everything freely with everyone I meet. Yes, there are a few of you strange ones like that, but the rest of us who get into conversation with people, it can take a few minutes to get through that maybe awkward silence, that awkward pause, to then say, hey, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on? Uh, with your husband, or what's going on with your job, or work, or how you feeling, you know? We don't usually just come right off the bat in the first minute and share all these things with people. And so this idea of conversation, 
And yet when that conversation is tied with someone that we know and trust and we know that they are committed to us, we're able to get to a place where we can converse and talk and walk through things that are very hard, that are very difficult. And that person can help keep us sane. They can speak truth into our lives. They can talk us off a ledge that we'll talk about in a minute. And they can converse with us. Yes, conversation can be hard. And they would say, every psychologist would say, every study that's been done is face-to-face conversation far supedes, uh, is far superior than any other kind of conversation that we can potentially have. It's a face-to-face way that we can empathize with someone else. We can see and read their facial expressions. We know their body posture. We know the tone in their voice that you cannot pick up through text. It is a way to converse with someone on a level that is far more intimate. It is a personal way of empathizing with someone, putting yourself in their shoes and helping join with them in whatever struggle that they might be in. And yet that kind of living and talking face-to-face, I can just give you one example. How often does that happen in politics these days? It doesn't many times. It happens online and as we comment on every little thing, our keyboard warriors defending the world, right? And yet what if we were face to face with that person talking with them and empathizing with them? We would be far less able to condemn and though we might not agree with that person, we would be able to see that that person's a human being that I need to talk to. And I think that's a way in which our our world does not, as Sherry Turkle would say, she's a writer, she talks about conversation is not so much information uh, information transferal, but even like a sermon isn't, isn't just information transferring to you. It is a creating of space to be shared. And I don't know if that makes sense to any of you, but it's a sense of... Are you providing space for someone else to talk to you? Are you providing a space to share a part of yourself with someone else? And I think in many times, that's how I view a sermon. Even uh, as we come and gather, we go through the difficulties of coming here to church and all the challenges that we face. And yet we come here in the awkwardness of church, because it can be awkward sometimes, or you have those conversations of those people you don't remember their name, and how do you do about this thing and that. And yet there's an embodied presence that's very important. Because today isn't just about you remembering everything that I say. It isn't just about you and me transferring in a conversation way. It's about you being transformed. It's about us creating space together. So we can explore the realities of truth found in God's word, and so his Holy Spirit can work in your heart and transform your character as you submit yourself to the truth that's being preached to you. So it's not always like, oh, I don't remember every word of Jordan's sermon last week. I don't either, right? But it's a way that we can allow ourselves to be transformed by the Spirit when we create space for one another to come together and allow that work to exist. And I believe in some way that's what conversation does as well. Conversation allows us to be in a place where we can have that space together to work through some of the most difficult things in life, and that comes down to ultimately listening to one another. It's not always talking and telling the other person what to do, but as David and Jonathan did, they conversed, they talked, they listened, and you'll see that they took action. So the third thing is uh, a friend takes action. There's a rawness to their conversation as they're talking. There's a reality of things that are going on. There's a situation in which they're saying in verse four, Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan's like, look, man, whatever it takes, I'm here. Whatever you say, I will do for you. I am here for you. I mean, imagine having a friend like that. It's committed with you. 
And some of you maybe have some of those friends, that friend who's ready to roll. Like uh, you roll into the house and you're like, I need your help. You know, I need you to help me with something. No questions asked. And they're like, all right, whose car are we taking? Right. You know, you're like, let's go. Right. You know, I don't know what it is. Don't get in trouble, kids. Right. But it's that idea of like that person who's committed to you. They are a friend. They're loyal and loving. Right. And yet there's a friend that takes action. Like, hey, uh, whatever you say, I will do for you. He says in verse four, verse five and on, it talks about this idea of, of uh, David and Jonathan uh, being willing to talk each other, or Jonathan especially for David, talk each other off the ledge. Like I said, David has faced something that is incredibly difficult, and yet David, uh, Jonathan is not telling him what he wants to hear. Look at verse uh, 5, David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at the evening. It was customary for that time for them to have a festival or a feast at the new moon, and David would have been required to go in his position. But if, and then so he says in verse 6, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. Verse 7, and if he says, hey, good, it will be well with your servant, but if he's angry, here, so see, there's the rub. He wants to know if Saul's going to be good to him or if he's going to be angry. Then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, verse 8, deal kindly with your ser- servant, for you have brought your servant into covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father now? Why waste any time, he says. You can hear this. He's trying to reason with, how do we figure out what I'm supposed to do? I'm not supposed to uh, uh, resist the Lord's anointed God, the king, currently Saul. I'm supposed to respect him, and yet he wants to kill me. What do I do? And then he says, I'm just at the point, Jonathan, right now, just kill me now and get it over with. I'm, I'm just tired of this. Just, if I have guilt before you, if Saul's going to come and kill me, let's just get it over with now. He is at a point where there is a step between him and death, and yet he changes his heart because Jonathan speaks truth into his life. And he says, look, Jonathan said, verse 9, far be it from you. Get those ways of thinking out of your mind, David. Don't think that. For if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Would I not speak life and truth into your life? Would I not tell you? Okay, so don't worry. Don't get to that point. Talking David off the ledge. Come back to earth. Dude, get a grip, right? Has anyone ever told you that? Yeah, shake you by the shoulders. Get a grip, man, right? And Jonathan's there, and the Lord knows we need that. And yet the opposite of that can be true, where David could have gone to people who would tell him what he wanted to hear, not give him a plan of action, and would join him in whatever reckless thing that he was considering. Because a wrong friend, a companion of fools, will reap destruction, right? And yet faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, Proverbs says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, for bad company ruins good morals or good habits. Bad company. An unreliable friend will come to ruin, but one who has an unreliable friend will soon come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A good friend, good company will sow truth into your life and will encourage you on the way that you should go. So we see this, that Jonathan tells him, get a grip, and the dilemma is ultimately, is Saul angry and murderous? He's going to continue to try to kill me, or, or is he asking him forgiveness? Can I? And Jonathan's probably thinking in his head, Look, I, I've, able to been, I've been able to work out peace in the past. If you looked in Psalm, 1 Samuel 19, he was actually able to, to bring in peace again. He brought David and Saul together, and he talked his father off a ledge as well. Jonathan becomes this kind of peacemaker. 
And so he talks about the ledge, he speaks truth in his life, and then he keeps their promise. A good friend keeps their promises. The last point for today. Uh, Verse 12, and we see this, and it goes on through verse 17. Verse 12 says, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be my witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed toward you, David, shall I not send and disclose this to you? Look, David, I'm going to tell you if he wants to kill you or not. Verse 13, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with me and my father. Now get this, pay attention to this. Verse 14, if I am still alive, show me loyal love or steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Verse 15, And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, in a sense, don't cut off my line. Don't cut off my people. Show kindness and steadfast love to me. And then get this, verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as as he loved his own soul. David and Jonathan were knit. And in fact, this idea there, David had one step between him and death. Later on, it describes the covenant that they made, that the Lord was now between him, between them. There was a step between David and death. Now, Jonathan, and really the Lord is now between them. And in, in a way, David, uh, Jonathan's rescued David. So they say their covenant, our relationship, our friendship, the Lord is between us and it cannot be broken. We have covenanted, we have vowed to each other to give loyal, steadfast love. No matter what may come, we will be friends and we will support each other and commit ourselves to one another. So we know Jonathan does this. In fact, Jonathan dies in battle and yet he eventually supports David to the very end. And yet we see in 2 Samuel, I want to take a quick moment to look at this. I know we don't have time to go over this whole chapter, and some of you are familiar with this story. 2 Samuel 9, where David keeps his end of the promise to his friend Jonathan after his death. Jonathan has a son. You know his son's name? Chapter 9, we see it. Chapter 9, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, it says, David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness is the same word they used earlier. It's hesed love, steadfast love. Is there anyone that I could show steadfast love for the sake of Jonathan? Now there was a servant who says, yes, there's someone, what is his name? And they go out looking for him. It says in verse three, there is still a son of Jonathan and yet he is crippled in his feet. The king said in verse four, where is he? He's in the house of Machir and he go and find him. They brought him and verse six and Mephibosheth is his name, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness. For in those days, what you would do to the line of Saul and the line of Jonathan and anyone who rivaled you, you cut off their head and get rid of them then your, your throne would not be challenged. But what he does instead, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will show you kindness and I will restore you in the land of Saul and your father. And look at this, you shall eat at my table always. This is an extraordinary story that we don't have time to go into, but this idea where David shows extraordinary steadfast love and kindness to Mephibosheth, a crippled son who had no way to provide for himself. He brings him into David's home and David puts Mephibosheth as one of David's very own sons and he eats at the king table 
for the rest of his days. In fact, in verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both feet. What an incredible path. What an incredible story. David showing love to Mephibosheth on behalf of Jonathan, keeping a covenant promise that they had to, to each other. And it is a beautiful story of you and me. It's a beautiful story of how we uh, react and interact in a relationship with God. We are in, in many ways like that Mephibosheth, crippled, unable to protect ourselves, unable to do anything for ourselves. And yet David, in the kindness, this Jesus Christ figure comes and makes us our friend, his friend. And we, we see that in James 2 where we become a friend of God. And as we look, even as we close the sermon today, I want you to turn to John 15. It's the passage we read earlier. John 15, we're going to close with this passage we began our prayer time with. And I want us to consider that though you may feel as if your friend list is full, maybe you have people supporting you, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're crying out today to the Lord saying, I don't have that best friend. Maybe you're uh, a man and you are busy, you're working, you're providing, and yet you don't have someone who you can call your friend. You maybe don't have someone who cares for you and will support you. I want you to know that no matter what your friend list looks like, you always have a friend in Jesus. And that sounds like a very simple thing. We're actually going to be closing the service in a very classic hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And yet I think the, the, the message is profound. and It's so vital for us to grasp because in John 15, the words that Jesus says are striking. The fact that the God of the universe would call you and me his friend. Look at this, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. A greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John 15, verse 14. But you are my friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. <laughs> No, 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 no longer do I just call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you may now go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And these I command you, that you love one another. I know there's this truth, this this practicality of friendship, that there are people in which we confide in, we get along with, and yet above and beyond all of those relationships, we can truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship where you can go to him in prayer no matter what. You can speak with him. As we talked about in my Sunday school class with the kids in the junior high, we talked to them about that very idea that God is divine. Jesus is divine. God is powerful, yet he is also human, and he was made in likeness of flesh, and he came on this earth, and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to feel what you felt. He knows what it's like to be mocked, to be bullied, to be pushed aside and not, not treated kindly, and yet it is in that ability of God to empathize with us is where we find this intimacy that we can love God because we know that we are loved by him and then we can go out and love others around us. It's this truth that we need to internalize today and consider that we praise God for the people that he's put around us to be our friends and we praise God for Jesus who is our friend. 
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this. We ask, God, that you would teach us these truths today in a way that goes beyond this service. Help us, Lord, to consider the greatness of your love, the greatness of your love that you have loved us. And because you have loved us, we seek to love one another. Lord, help us be a friend for someone in need today. Practically, God, if that's it, if that's what I need to learn today, that I need to be a friend for somebody else, help me to be that. Impress upon our hearts right now that person that you're calling us to be a friend to. Help us to be friendly, help us to be kind, and show that steadfast, loyal love to someone in need. Thank you, God, for your love that will never leave us, never forsake us. You're always with us, and we praise you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.